this is Kelly. And this is JJ. And it's Half Pint Happy Hour at Pub Crawl. Yay! Yay! So these were intended to be short episodes where we check in, catch up, and answer questions to tide you guys over until we get back into recording full-length episodes, but that didn't quite happen as we planned. No, we got a couple out for you guys, but we know it's been a while. And also the last one we put out was about as long as a regular episode. So yeah. Like... <laughs> anyway, so how y'all doing? How are you doing, Kelly? It's been a while. It's been a while, I know. I miss you. Um, I miss you too. It's been it's been good. I just got back from vacation. I was out east to visit my family and that was really wonderful. And uh, it's finally summer around here. It's very hot. I hope all our listeners appreciate the fact that I turned all my fans off so that your sound quality would be better, but know that I am My dying. AC is off as well. <laughs> yep, yep, the sacrifices we make. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this summer. Um, you know, I've got some good plans on the horizon and it's been, it's been a good, it's been a good spring. It's been a good couple weeks. What about you? What's going on with you? Your life is very different now. <laughs> it is very different. So if you guys have, if you guys either um, read Pub Crawl, which I'm sure many of you do, or you um, are subscribed to my newsletter, I did talk about the fact that I am now a full-time writer. Yay! Yay! Um, so, I mean, part of the reason we went on semi-hiatus in the first place was because I just could not manage writing, drafting a book my day job, and the podcast at the same time. So um, the, we kind of put the podcast aside while I was trying to deal with that. But ultimately it came down to the fact that I couldn't really handle the day job either <laughs> on top of writing a book. Um, so I ultimately had to resign. Um, and it's been great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I I know this is the dream that everybody wants um, as, a, as a writer, and it is extremely nice granted I'm only in like my first month so who knows mm-hmm. three months in it could be terrible but like as of right now it was what I needed I just couldn't keep up with all of the commitments that I had as a writer and as somebody who worked at my day job so I mean I guess we can talk about this more in depth in a future episode about when the decision to go full-time is a good thing yeah for people I think that's something to do. But ultimately, for me, it came down to the fact that I could either do two jobs poorly or one job well. And I chose. So I chose writing over my day job. Um, and before the existential dread hits me, let's continue with the rest of this podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> um, we got a lot of questions in over our hiatus. We did, which was nice. Yes, it was very nice. So we can go ahead and ask them. So let's see. All right. So the first one is actually a question asked on Tumblr by Lou Allen. And they said, hi, I have a question. Is it best to get an agent in your own country or can you query elsewhere? For instance, I live in the UK. Could I send eight queries to agents in the USA? Is it better to get an agent in your own country, even if the market seems stronger elsewhere? Um, I, I think it really doesn't matter. I I think it matters where you want ultimately your, your book to be sold, you know, and where the market is, you think for the type of book that you are 
writing um, and where you most want to see it published. Um, if you get an agent in the United States and you are not um, a citizen of the United States or not a resident of the United States, then most likely your U.S. agent is going to have predominantly um, U.S. contacts. They may have a foreign rights team that can sell in other countries, even possibly, um, you know, the country where you live. But the m main market for selling the book will be the U.S. So that's kind of the first thing that I would keep in mind if you're querying. I do get queries from people who do not live in the United States, um, and that's totally fine. I'm absolutely willing to work with people from wherever. But I guess if you're a writer trying to query, that's the question that you know you want to answer, that the agent's primary sales market will probably be wherever they are located. Yeah, I would agree. There are, I mean, the U.S. and the U.K. both have different markets in terms of publishing. Books that get published here sometimes don't get published in the U.K. and vice versa. There is obviously a lot of overlap because, um, you know, both countries speak English or read English. But I think if you want to be published in the U.S. market, you query a U.S. agent. Because that's where, as Kelly said, the primary contacts would be. Um, and if you want to sell in the U your home market, the UK first, then I would query a UK agent. They have a very robust publishing industry there. And, you know, when you sell rights in other territories, your agent, your domestic agent, will work with foreign sub-agents. So it, it almost really doesn't matter. I guess the choice comes down to where, where you want your primary market to be. Um, but I don't think your physical location actually matters because I know people who don't live in the U.S. who have U.S. agents. I also know people, U.S. citizens, whose agents are based in the U.K. So, you know, it's not all that common, but it's not uncommon either. Yeah. All right. So, all right, then let's see what the next question is. Um, we have another one about... The rules show, don't tell. Um, and this person, I'm, I'm going to strip out some of the specifics, but the person said that they just picked up a, deb a, a debut novel and it's pretty much entirely telling with no showing. Mm. It's full of words that say the same thing, um, but they can't stop reading. So the question is, so has everyone from Elmore Leonard to Online Writing Course Tutor been misguided? Or is this a, simply a case of literary cheesecake, something you know that is not good for you, but you eat it anyway? I mean, I think that um, all kinds of different books are published, and there's a whole slew of different audiences for books that want different things from their books, and that... Um, you know, literary cheesecake is a thing. I think JJ and I usually call them crack when we're talking yeah. about, about our own, you know, books that we have, we have tastes like that, where there's a book that we can't stop reading. Um, but yet at the same time, when you stop and think about it, you're like, well, this is not, you know, objectively like like, great. Objectively from yeah. a craft point, it's probably not that great. And but, yet eh. it's like, you're like turning the pages so fast. The words are like a blur before you because you're just inhaling this book. Um, and we call those crack. I also like cheesecake. I think that's very apt. Um, you know, and I think it's just, it's just a matter of taste. Those books can be great and, and people read them and love them. And, um, you know, I don't think that, I think that when you start to get to this place where, you are um, 
dictating like what is and is not quality like with some kind of arbitrary line that you draw, you get, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. I think a lot about how like people are very dismissive of like the romance market. And, you know, when you step back and you look at that dismissal, it's kind of like, well, that's being dismissive of like a large section of readers who are women who are looking for certain things in their books. And, you know, it's really reductive in that way. So I, I I try to step back from making those kind of like sweeping judgments, but like, sure, there's books that are just, you know, that are pulpy, that are beach reads, that are, that are fun and frivolous and don't have to be, you know, the next most amazing, prosaic, wonderful piece of literature ever written to still be successful and enjoyable and, and worth reading. Yeah. I think, Again, you know, we've said that, you know, these books don't necessarily objectively have to be good craft-wise to hold your attention. Um, but it's also, every writing rule has an exception, mm-hmm. or several. You know, there's several books that prove that you don't have to use this particular aphorism. And show, them, show Don't Tell is an example of that. And, and honestly, if, if the person who is doing the quote-telling if the writer is skilled enough and the writer is, com- the voice is compelling enough, I kind of don't care. You know, like if they could just be telling, they're literally telling me the story and I'm not observing it or witnessing it or seeing it the way we're supposed to in the show don't tell it. It doesn't really matter. You know, I think, and it can depend either on the mood as well. I think I mentioned a while ago that I had read the historian by Elizabeth Kostova and this book is chock full of telling, like top to bottom, just telling, 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 telling. And, you know, it's funny because the first time I read it, I didn't care and I could not read that book fast enough. And the second time around, all of that telling got in the way. And so it could be a thing that varies day to day, you know, so who knows? All reading is is subjective for the most part. So... But, you know, you at, at, when it comes to your own writing about which rules to follow and which to not, I can't tell you that you shouldn't follow them or that you should follow them. You should just, you know, use your best judgment, I guess. And don't read what you don't enjoy, too. Yes, I agree with that. All right. So then the next question... Uh, all right. It says, hi, I have a question about querying. I'm halfway through writing a YA fantasy novel that I'm planning to finish over the summer. I've gotten positive feedback so far from readers that I trust, and I, of course, plan on delving into revisions once the first draft is finished. I really love the story, characters, and world, and would like to eventually query an agent with the novel. So my question is, once it's finished and revised, how will I know it's ready to query? Is there any way to get a good indication of this, or is it strictly up to the writer to look to try to look objectively at their work and decide if it passes muster. Thanks, Allie. It's a really good question. Um, well, personally, I always go by gut feeling. So yeah. I finished my book and then I queried it. I didn't even bother to revise. Um, <laughs> You're the exception. <laughs> I, I told you think... there's always exceptions to the rule. I know. Right? <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, I, I agree totally. It is a gut feeling, you know, your last line of the question kind of nailed it. It's up to the writer to just kind of figure it out. I think there's a couple of things you can look for. I, I do think that in general, you should step away from your book for a little bit, even if it's just a couple of days, don't, don't write the end and then send it out 
in the next like 15 minutes. Like give yourself a little bit of space to sit with it. Even if it's a day, two days, a week, a month, um, you know, distance yourself a little bit. Um, I usually think that revisions are a good idea if it's the first book you've written. Um, but you know, if it, you know, some people write their first book, query it and, and it's a runaway success and that's fine. So it really is just up to you to know there's nobody can tell you there's not going to be, you know, a magic light emanating from your computer screen that says this is finally ready for agents to see. You just kind of have to decide for yourself. Also, if you get sick of it, that's kind of a good indication. If you've been tinkering with something for a long time and you just are like, oh, my God, I can't look at this anymore. I'm I'm done. You know, you just you just will know, I guess. Yeah, I think. I think I do agree with Kelly. I think revisions are a good idea. And I think maybe you're ready to query when the revisions aren't big picture things. When the revisions come down to small niggling things like diction or, you know, the arrangement of the words in a sentence. When it gets down to that level of revision, then you're probably ready to let it go. Because if you are tinkering with your book on that level, then you're probably afraid of letting it go. So I think it's time. But yeah, I I do think it's a gut feeling. You know when a story is in in the shape it should be, because mm-hmm. that's really what it is. It's I think, and this is a, a hard thing to quantify because it's so different from book to book. But you kind of know in the course of writing or developing something when something has the shape of the book it's going to be. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, these are my ideas that I put onto the page, and I'm still figuring out what the book is, I'm still figuring out what the arc of the story is, I'm still, you know, all that sort of stuff. When you kind of, when all that has come together into sort of one cohesive vision, I would say you can fine-tune that, but as a whole, it's ready to go. Because a lot of the time, I think when agents get submissions and they read manuscripts, and when they say something isn't ready, it's basically that, that the, that the story hasn't coalesced in any sort of way that the agent could help you, you know, fine-tune it even further for submission. So I think when you when the story has its shape and you made it as strong as you can make it, that's when it's ready to go out. I think that's probably the best advice I could give. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're blowing through these questions. I know. Awesome. Anyway, all right, next one. Um, Hi, my name is Erica, and I am from Malta. I'd like some advice on publishing career. I have a bachelor's degree in accounting and banking, but I'd like a career change and would like to go into publishing, specifically editing. I've also studied a separate subject to my degree in copy editing and proofreading. I've been looking into summer publishing courses, mainly NYU, SPI, and CPU. How do you think I should break into the publishing industry? Should I go for a publishing program since I don't even have an English bachelor's degree? And do you think that because I'm from a different country that I won't be able to get a fair chance at a job through the connections I'd formed during the publishing summer course? Thanks for your time. (sighs) Okay. Um, Getting into the publishing industry is difficult because it is so competitive. Um. It is especially hard to get into editing, I think, because that's the most competitive area of publishing. I think that it, I would caution you against expecting to complete a summer program with enough connections to land a job. Um, it's possible. 
but I now, and I'm also saying this as someone, I did not go through any of these programs, so I'm not sure entirely how they're run. I'm sure they're taught by industry professionals. I'm sure that you have opportunities to network with industry professionals, but um, I don't know how much some of these programs focus on that. And, um, you know, and while networking can be great and you can get a lot of informational interviews, that doesn't necessarily transfer to um, a job offer. So, um, the publishing industry gets uh, launches a lot of careers off unpaid work through mm-hmm. unpaid internships, um, which are um, which make it really difficult for people who don't live in New York to break into the industry. It makes it really difficult for people of color to break into the industry. Um, it is not. A good thing. Uh, it is a reality, and I don't want to gloss over that or pretend like that's not true. There are ways to break into the industry, and so I don't want to completely discourage you. Um, I see that you have a background in accounting. This probably is not what you want to do, but it would probably be much easier for you to get an accounting job within the publishing industry than any other sort of job and use your skill set to change industries. And then once you are in the publishing industry, try to make lateral moves once you're there. Um, You know, I know it's not the career, you know, trajectory that you're hoping for. Um, I think it would probably be your easiest way to break in. Not that you couldn't break in in other ways. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, if you can, I think remote internships are happening more and more lately. A lot of agents are taking on remote internships again, which unfortunately mostly are unpaid, but at least you can get some job experience you can put on your resume. If there's, you know, if you've got a couple hours a week, you can kind of do that on the side. Um, You know, anything that you can do to gain experience um, or to, you know, if not in the industry in itself, then in a book adjacent, you know, something to do with books in some format would help you. Um, you know, I think those programs are great. I think if you have no publishing experience, then I'm sure you'd learn a lot and it would be really helpful. I, I don't want you to go into a program like that and spend the money and come here and travel, um, thinking that you're going to leave, you know, an eight week course with a job offer. Cause I don't think that will happen. No, some real talk from both Kelly and me, since um, the honest number one thing that you need to be willing to do in order to break into this industry is live in New York City. I wish it weren't the case, because New York is heinously expensive to live in, and publishing pays peanuts. It It pays nothing. nothing. I mean, let's be be really, really honest right now. Um, Publishing pays no money. My first job, uh, back in 2007, but I don't think it's adjusted too much for inflation. I was paid $27,500 for my full-time job in New York city. And, uh, and that's just the reality of it. (laughs) And Kelly was working at a literary agency. Yep. Um, a good one, (laughs) a good one, a very well, a very reputable one. My first publishing job was as an editorial assistant at one of the big five publishing houses. Before that, I had an internship um, at a literary agency, which as is where did I, I got. Yep. Yeah, which is where I met the people who would eventually hire me. And 
that internship paid a stipend, but it didn't pay anything close to a living wage, I believe, no. for about three months. It was like 200 bucks or something. I got more than $200. Did I think you? It was, like seven, it was like $700. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but... But not for, anything you could live on. That was less than our rent, because we were living yeah, together at the time. Yeah, that wasn't Kelly even one month's rent. Yeah, that wasn't even a month's rent. Um, that's 700 And it was also for three months worth of work. Of work. Um, over, you know, it was like 25 hours a week, three months, over three months. And so that's nothing. It pays nothing. I was fortunate. My parents are, were able to help me out and support me. And there were like all sorts of other circumstances, but it's hard. So I'm not going to front. It's going to be difficult. Breaking into the publishing industry requires that there is some proximity to New York City, particularly if you want to go into editorial. Now, there is a difference between, and I, and I do want to stress that there is a difference between copy editing and editorial. Because as an editor, as an acquiring editor, I did not do any copy editing whatsoever. If you want to get a job copy editing, that is actually easier to do. A lot of publishing houses contract out their copy editing work to freelance copy editors and proofreaders. We, I mean, a lot of publishing houses, mine definitely had a stable of copy editors in the production department or production editors as we called them and worked on all of our titles. But for some, we, we, you know, contracted out to other mm -hmm. copy editors. So you could do that from anywhere. You could, you know, you can do that from home. All they would do is they would email you the manuscript and you would mark it up and send it back. Um, so there's, there's that. And also, and Kelly could tell you, she doesn't live in New York city now, but she is a literary agent. You know, so if you want to eventually move into the agenting side of publishing, that is also a part of the business that doesn't require you to be in New York City all the time. Mm -hmm. but Although, if you are trying to become an agent and you are working remotely, that's going to be a lot more difficult if you have no publishing experience because you mm -hmm. won't have a mentor on site to train you because agenting, the agenting side of the business is really like an apprenticeship. You need someone who knows the business, who can teach you what to do. And if you're remote, um, you know, I'm working remotely, but I've been working in publishing for 10 years. I know the industry. I know what I need to do. So I'm okay on my own. If I was just starting out and was just by myself out here in Minneapolis and had no one to train me, my experience would be very different. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so even literary agents, I think usually get their start in New York so that you can go into an office and have a senior person mentor you. I think also the, the point about the publishing courses, I did know quite a few people who did go to the summer publishing courses, but a lot of them didn't do it to get to get a job a lot of them did them in addition to the jobs they already had in publishing um you know and and these summer publishing courses they're not of course I don't know them of all of them but they're not really that specialized they're not specialized in editing they're not no. specialized in marketing they're not mm -mm. specialized in any real way they just kind of give you a general overview of the business 
So you're getting an, an overview of the business if you don't know much about it, but if you wanted to specialize your skills in any way, it's not particularly useful in that regard. Um, but on the other hand, we did hire an editorial assistant from the Columbia Publishing course at one of the job fairs. She became an editorial assistant for romance. Um, so it's not that it doesn't happen, it's just that it's... It is a very competitive field. That's really what it comes down to. There are so many people trying to get those jobs. And I don't want to be super discouraging, but I want to tell you, it's not easy. I you, want you Kelly to know. Kelly and I have been yeah. there. <laughs> I, we want you to know before you come, because if you know that, then you won't put all your eggs in one basket. You will think about you know, all the different ways to make contacts, to get job experience, you know, you really need to think holistically and think about doing as much as you possibly can. I don't want you to come to New York for one summer program and think that that's gonna, you know, make you. Um, so, <laughs> and I hate, I hate that it's like this. I, I hate that it is so difficult to get into this industry because let's face it, everyone that works in publishing works there because they're passionate about books. That's why mm -hmm. we all find our way there. And so everybody who works in the industry is a driven, passionate, creative, intelligent, exceptional person. And it, it's so difficult and so unfairly stacked in favor of more privileged populations. And there's a lot of nepotism and there's, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate and it does need to change. Um, I think people in the industry are realizing that it needs to change. I don't think there's a lot of actual viable solutions being put forth yet. So I don't think that change is imminent. Um, but yeah. yeah, we can go into a whole other, <laughs> a whole other thing. Yeah. About working in publishing and, the the reasons it's so difficult to work in publishing. Um, but that's a podcast for another way, day. Yeah. But we do say these things, not to discourage you, but to give you context. And if you really want to make it work, you will make it work. Mm -hmm. But don't expect that it will happen the way, it, that it will happen immediately or overnight. No. I think if you move to New York and find a job in New York City, you can make career moves. That's ex actually what I did because publishing wasn't my first career. It wasn't my first job. I worked in finance before I worked in publishing. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't change careers and you can't find different positions or whatever. But I think if you if your ultimate goal is to end up in publishing, then think of the several, like, you know, think of more than one path to getting there. You know, don't don't just say I'm going to do this publishing course and it's going to get me a job. Just find multiple, you know, just have plans A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. you know, just have, have a couple. Yeah. I found a question. All right. So this one is from Raina. She says, I have a question. Can you talk about the logistics of sending back an R&R? Do you reply to the original email thread or start a new one? Send the full directly or start from square one? Query pages, wait for them to request again. Mention R&R in the subject line or no? A brief overview of all the changes you've made as well as the reasons for not making some helpful or bad idea. And also, before you start revising, are you allowed to email back to ask questions and check if the agent agrees with your revision plan? Um, so these are a lot of questions about R&Rs, which is a revise and resubmit. Mm -hmm. So this is what happens if an agent, um, has read a portion of your manuscript, either the whole thing or a partial, 
and they like it and they see some potential in it, but it's not there yet. And so they say, I like this, but I'm going to pass now. Um, if you revise, I'd be happy to take a look again. Please send it back. And sometimes they'll give you editorial notes and sometimes they won't. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's up to that. I, I think the easiest way to answer this question is to say, if you get an agent that says, um, revise and resubmit, email them back, say thank you, and uh, say, how how can I send this to you when it's ready? Like, what? just ask these questions of that particular agent, because I can't necessarily give you an answer that will be, um, you know, work for everyone. I think in general, your best bet is to reply to the existing email chain, because then they can just scroll down and see, oh, yep, I said that I wanted this back, and here it is, and it just jogs their memory. I think that's always easiest. Um, you know, so I would suggest doing that. Um, I would not make a list of all the changes. I would not, you know, do that. I would just say, you know, here it is, um, and send it. But again, you know, if check with the agent who's asking for the revision, um, emailing back to ask questions, to check if the agent agrees with you and so on. I think, you know, so here's the thing. Agents sometimes will um, sign clients whose books need work, but that they want to work on and they're excited about it and they see enough potential that they feel confident that they can sell the work and, and take that on and, and do a lot of editorial work. Um, if the agent isn't signing you, I don't know how willing they're going to be to do all that work up front. It's a lot of work to give someone edit notes. It's hard and it's time consuming. And so if an agent just, you know, writes back to you and says, yeah, you know, I need, you know, more backstory for the protagonist and I need the romance, you know, to be built up more or something, that might be the extent of what they're willing to offer you. And so writing back continually and checking in and asking for more advice, uh, kind of crosses that line because the agent is also trying to see if you can revise, if that is something that you are capable of doing. Can you take, you know, minimal direction? Can you spot the weak places in your own work and, and work to improve them? Um, I, I mean, my only real answer is just ask the agent who's, you know, who you're talking to. Uh, that's your best bet. But I think in general, um, go off and do the work and then bring it back <laughs> and, you know, and that's that. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't necessarily think checking in with an agent with your revision plan is useful. I think no. because I, I, when I was an editor anyway, if I asked for a revise and resubmit, um, generally I would give pretty concrete explanation of what wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, something like, oh, I think this is a really good idea, but the execution doesn't hold up here, 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 and here. And, and I would just sort of leave it at that. And, you know, and I would let the, the agent take it back to the author. And if they agreed with, you know, my idea or the direction that I thought the book should go, then they were welcome to revise and resubmit it to me. I think because if the author came back and said, these are my ideas for vision, it almost doesn't matter to me because I'm, you know, like, well, this is the book that I think that it should be in order for me to be able to market and sell this. So seeing the author's revision plan, it's also one thing. It's like, okay, so here's your revision plan, but can you execute it? It doesn't yeah. really matter. You, you either can do it or you can't. So... 
I think if you're if an agent offers a revise and resubmit and they give you direction, great. If it jives with you, go ahead and revise along that line. If it's a little bit more vague, maybe you want to just sort of continue continue to query and maybe see if their criticisms or what they have to say are kind of common and being echoed by other agents, then maybe that's something you can consider and kind of incorporate all of that. But, you know, I think basically it, either it, it resonates with you or it doesn't. So that's kind of what it comes down to for me. I think either the revisions that they're asking you to do, you're like, oh, there's a light that goes off in your head. Oh, okay, I see. This is what I want. You know, I understand and I'm going to work on this. And I found that for me anyway, that in the editorial process, if my editor suggests something and there's like a light switch at the back of my brain and I'm like, oh, I didn't see that, but now I've got a million more ideas that will help me get to that point, that's a, that's a good editorial comment. But if my editor had said something to me and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, but that's not what I want, then I'm going to ignore that. So <laughs> that's, that's all editorial revision advice that I can really give. Yeah. All right, I have another question, which is from Nick. It says, ladies, I've been enjoying your podcast. I just recently discovered it, and I had a question that I don't remember seeing or hearing the podcast cover. My question is in relation, relation to hiring a book editor. Is it worth it, in your opinion, for a writer to spend the money getting a professional to edit their manuscripts before sending it to a publisher? I feel I am a skilled writer, but I have no delusions. I'm not perfect, and there are mistakes that I don't catch. If you think it might be a good idea, are there any particular editor services that you feel are recommendable for editing a fantasy trilogy? No. <laughs> okay, so that's an easy answer. Um, I think that if your goal is to be traditionally published, um, do not hire an editor at the beginning of your writing and, and at the beginning of, you know, before you query, before you send to agents, before you send to publishers, any of that. If you are self-publishing, um, yes, go ahead, hire an editor. I think that's a great idea. You want it to be as good as it can be. And, you know, absolutely do that if you are intending to self-publish your book. If you're attending, intending to traditionally publish, um, hold off on that. I think that you can get um, I, I love critique partners. I love critique groups. Um, you know, JJ and I have talked about that before. I think you can find somebody really great and get some really wonderful insight and feedback from um, those types of people. Um, just a regular old developmental editor um, in general before you query. I don't think so because I think probably 80% of agents these days are editorial and mm -hmm. they're going to work with you on your book before they submit it. And then you're going to get an actual editor to submit it. Agents, when we are looking through our queries, um, I'm not looking for perfection. It's great if I find perfection. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I'm looking for. I am looking for potential. I am looking for the potential for a great story, the potential for great writing. If I feel like those things are possible that the writer is capable of delivering great writing and a great story. Um, then I want that book and I'm going to work with them to get it there if it's not there already. Um, so I would not overly concern yourself with perfection before querying. If you are, um, 
writing outside your lane and you want to hire a developmental read um, to target a specific perspective or a sensitivity read, um, that I think might be worth doing before you get to the agenting stage. If you don't do it before you get an agent, most agents these days are going to talk to you about it before you go on submission. Um, so that will probably come up hopefully at some point in your publishing process. Um, so for that, those specific kinds of things, if you're writing a character who has an, doesn't share your identity, um, then that might be a good idea and you can do that up front and, you know, you can let agents know I've done this. And if agents are interested, you can show them the, you know, the, the notes from that editor. Um, so I think that's the one exception here, but if you're just talking about like just a developmental editor to tighten things up and, you know, give me some feedback on the world building in my fantasy or whatever, uh, no, I wouldn't waste your money. If you've gotten 250 query rejections and you're starting to feel like maybe there's some more work that I need to do, maybe consider it then. And really not before 250. There's, there's a lot of agents out there. You need to send a lot of queries and get a lot of rejections possibly before you find the right match. So don't jump the gun on that. Um, I don't know. Do you agree? I do. I don't think it's worth it when I, okay. There are a couple, there are obviously different levels of editing because if you are talking about a copy edit, it's no. not worth it. Because the publisher is going to hire a copy editor anyway. So, you know, if you are looking to be traditionally published, the only situation where I would say to hire a developmental editor is, say, for example, you've been querying and you've gotten a lot of requests for fulls and most of those requests have come back with, I like this, but if you, you know, but it doesn't quite work for me, so why don't you revise and resubmit? And you do that and you still get comments that are like, it's still not there yet, then maybe it might be worth it to hire a developmental editor who can look at your manuscript and say, this is where it's not working. Because most agents, because they're doing this basically for free, mm -hmm. won't necessarily be able to take the time to do it. You know, they've got other clients to take care of. They've got a lot of other responsibilities. So you hire a developmental editor to really help you get to the point you know, if you're close but not there yet and you don't know what it is that you're mm -hmm. not quite there with, I think a developmental editor can help you. But aside from that, not really. And there's also kind of that thing where it's like you, you either think it's worth it to spend the money on a developmental edit or you think maybe I'll write the next one, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think either or. And, you know, obviously you're going to weigh those costs and you're going to weigh that against whatever it is. Maybe the market's not ready or maybe this, but if it really is a craft issue that you think is holding you back from getting representation, like you're getting close but not quite because there's just some craft issue that you're not able to execute, then I think it's worth it to hire somebody. But other than that, no, I think, in, in, I mean, an agent is going to want to work with the writer, not a writer and their editor. You know what I mean? Like when you're, mm -hmm. when they're looking to represent somebody. So I think hold off. I think as Kelly said, if you are looking to self-publish, that is different. I think having an, paying an editor to help you, you know, develop the book to the best of its, to the best it's going to be before you self-publish, that is another thing. And mm -hmm. a lot of times I do see people hire uh, freelance developmental editors for nonfiction, 
which is much more common than fiction because nonfiction is about the content is as much as the writing, right? So whereas really it's going to be the writing that carries the writing and the story that carries a fiction novel, a fiction book was nonfiction. It could be a really important thing and that they want to talk about, but they don't know quite know how they want to approach the subject or how they want to write about it. I think that's when you would hire a developmental editor before you go out in submission with that. But otherwise, you know, work on your craft. There are plenty of free resources for writers. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe exhaust all of those before you go and you spend your money. Yeah. I have another question. Oh. And this is from Melissa. And she says, Hello, I'm interested in how to assign age groups for nonfiction books, especially books for kids. I have some books written in the 70s and 80s that don't specify what age group or grade the book is written for, and the books themselves don't lend themselves to easy categorization. Is there clear criteria somewhere for evaluating books in elementary versus middle school kids? Thanks, Melissa. No. Um, <laughs> I think back, you know, in the 70s and 80s and the Wild West of publishing, um, you know, children's fiction was just all kind of lumped together as for kids of all ages, regardless whether it was fiction or nonfiction. Um, you know, I would suggest that you just kind of read through them and, and make an educated guess based on, you know, the vocabulary and the subject being discussed. Um you know, and just kind of use your best judgment. You could also talk to some um, school librarians or some, you know, teachers that, uh, in those age groups and kind of have them flip through and see what they think. Um, I don't think there is an existing resource that will kind of give you guidelines for that sort of thing. No, and a lot of those determinations about age ranges are determined by, like, school library journal as opposed yeah. to... And the school library journal, of course, is a whole bunch of librarians who kind of collectively make that decision. So I think maybe going to a library is probably the best resource you can do because I I don't know if there's like there's no like checklist no of criteria when it comes to age groups, it, particularly for nonfiction. I think it's going to be the level of writing, but to be honest, I don't know what that criteria really is in terms of the level of writing. And I mean, I'm sure you were like me, Kelly, where we read ahead of our age level, you know? Yeah, so all the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I think going to the library is definitely going to be your best bet. All right. So that is the last question that I can see. Unless Oof. you see any on Twitter. I don't. That is it. Okay. So we can move on to what we've been working on. Yay! What have you been working on? Book two. Is it in? No, it's not in. No. It will, no. Soon. Um, soon. It will be soon. So, <laughs> to explain a little bit, going <laughs> back to the beginning of the podcast about why I quit my day job, I had a nervous breakdown because my deadline had come up and I had half a book. And I just, I just couldn't finish it and I couldn't turn it in on time. Um, and I called my agent and I told my editor and they were fine with it. You know, I, I gave my editor what I had of my book and she read it and we had a phone call this 
past week and she was like, I don't know, it's not the hot mess that you were leading me to expect it to be. So she's like, just keep going and when do you think you can have it done? And I told her, I think I can have it done by the end of the month because I don't have another job in the way now. So, and I only really have half a book left to write, so it's not so bad. Um, and I know what the ending is, so I just have to sit down and write it. So it's, I'm, but I'm still working on book two and going to the gym. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Nice. Oh, wow. Um, agenting stuff. I went out on submission with my first Yay! client's project. Yeah. I, I, I texted JJ. It's really funny. I was like, I sent uh, my author's book out on submission and she was like, yay. And then I was like, I forgot that patience is not a virtue I possess because <laughs> it had been like 12 hours. And I was like, where are my responses? <laughs> Which, uh, no, that's not how the industry works. Um, and I know that because I am in the business of keeping people waiting these days. I'm very far behind in all my work. Sorry. Um, but that was really exciting. I basically spent the entire month of May working on that submission. Um, you know, doing other things too, but the bulk of my work day each day, significant hours were spent to that because I had to craft the pitch letter and that went through a couple of revisions and I had to finalize my submission list, um, you know, and, and get that set and, and send it to the people that I thought would be best. And the pitch letter was really actually quite difficult to write. Once I got into the right like zone, it was fine. Um, I enjoy that kind of promotional writing because like queries and pitches, honestly, like this is marketing. You're, you're trying to like amp up interest in your book. It's a different kind of writing. And I think that's why authors, um, struggle so much with query letters. Um, but it took me a while to like flip that switch in my head because I had been editing for so long that I had to like turn on the marketing side of my brain. Once I tapped into it, I, I felt really good about it and it moved a lot quicker. But I, I mean, I had one of those like weeks upon weeks where you'd like type a paragraph and erase the whole paragraph <laughs> and type another paragraph and erase the whole paragraph. Um, and so that took a long time and then sending it out, you know, and then I'm getting it ready to go. And so I've, you know, I've got all these email drafts sent with like everything and the editor and the individualized pitch the to each editor and then the actual body of the pitch letter and the attachments and making sure it's the right attachment and not, you know, one of the old manuscripts kicking around. And so, you know, that took forever. And of course, you know, I was meticulous about checking all of those things. And that was really my month of May was doing that. Um, and then as soon as that went out, I had to start work on my next client's edits. <laughs> and so that's really the bulk of what I've been doing. Um, that and also preparing lesson plans. Cause I'm actually going to be teaching at the loft literary center again in the fall. Ooh. Yeah. I'm teaching an online class. So anybody, anywhere can take it. You don't have to be in Minneapolis. So that's awesome. going to be really great. Yeah. I'll tell you guys more about that when that comes up. It's far away, but I had to submit a proposal and put everything together. So I spent a lot of time working on that. Um, I am so behind in all of my queries and in all my requested reading. I have manuscripts that I requested in January that I haven't responded to yet. And I need to do that. And if you're listening, I'm sorry. And we've probably emailed about it already. Um, 
I'm working on it. It's happening. I promise. <laughs> this is the kind of interesting thing is that I've moved into this stage of agenting where I have clients now and client management is the priority. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's strange how much time everything takes because there really are only so many hours in the day. <laughs> and yep. so I'm learning a new work-life balance. I know I'm very behind. Uh, I'm working on it. I'm catching up. Uh, and hopefully I'll be caught up again soon. But for right now, I'm just kind of drowning in work. And you know what that's like. <laughs> mm, I do know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in that time, have you read anything that's not quite related stuff? I honestly don't think I have. I did not read any books on vacation, which was horrible, but true. Um, I really don't think I've read a single book. I'm on the waiting list for like 75 books at the library, and I'm just waiting for them all to come through. I think I'm number two for When Dimple Met Rishi, and I'm so excited for that one to come in. Yay! Um, which just hit the New York Times bestseller it list today, did. which it's is so amazing. Exciting. Yeah, yeah the, so that happy. is like the best cover for a book. I know, a book it's so cute. That I've ever so seen. Cute. Every time I see it pop up on my Twitter feed, I just start grinning because it's just so sunny and wonderful. Um, yeah, so it's I, like a perfect, like, summery contempt. You know, mm-hmm. and super cute. So. Yeah, and I hadn't seen the back cover until I, I know. Think it was, I, I had neither until the Revis, jacket. Actually, I think like tweeted the back cover, and it's like her like throwing the iced coffee in his face, which was just even more amazing. Mm-hmm. I love it. So hopefully, I will be reading that soon. But honestly, I really think for all the month of May, I don't think I read for pleasure, just work. What about you? You've been doing a lot of reading. Yeah, sort of. Um, let's see. Because I really hadn't had time to read or do pretty much anything when when I was trying to juggle both a day job and um, and work and also travel. I ended up kind of like going back and forth from LA, yeah. and I had Y'all West, which is always great to have these events and stuff. But it's just like you know, in addition to having to write, there's like all the other author stuff that I had to do, and I just didn't have time for that much, like let alone time to read anything. But since we last recorded, let me just pull up my Goodreads. What have I read? Um, I have read the latest Sarah J. Mass book, A Court of Wings and Ruin. Um, I read A Flame in the Mist, which I actually read a while ago, but, um, it just came out and it was great. I read, oh, I read all the healer books by Maria V. Snyder. Um, <gasps> so good. <laughs> so good. This, this is what Kelly and I mean by crack, because... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, 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 I can't explain Mar- what it is Maria about her. Maria V. Snyder has a formula, and all of her books follow that formula, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's literally same. the same book over and over and over again, and I don't care. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. It works for me. And also, they're just kind of weird. They're like... I think I'd mentioned before there's a romance author named Laura Kinsale who was really great and also wackadoo. Like, all of her plots are just like, what? And the same thing with Maria B. Snyder because I read this, the healer books, and I was like, they're like sentient giant lilies that are carnivorous, maybe? And I I don't really know. It is super wackadoo, and I didn't care. I just blew through these and I knew I was in a rut before because I think I told Kelly that like last year maybe that I tried to start reading the first book 
and I didn't finish it. And I just like, I can't. And I was like, you know, what? <laughs> I know. And I was like, I can't get into this. But then, you know, after I finally resigned my day job, I had like emotional space to read again. And I just, I read it one night, promptly bought the next two books and read them yep. the same day. Like, yep. so it was like, yep. Binging Maria V. Snyder in like 36 hours more or less. That's oh, yeah. I did. So good. Yep. Um, then I read the most recent Cassandra Clare book, Lord of Shadows, which is the second in the Dark Artifices. I honestly actually can't tell any of her trilogies apart because the <laughs> names of her trilogies are always like yes. adjective, like adjective noun object. So it's like, you know, it's like the mortal instruments and the infernal devices. And I think this is, this is the dark artifices according to Goodreads anyway. Um, I can't keep them straight, but, um, I do think this is my favorite of the series that she has written so far. I think part of it is because there are some tropes, I mean, Cassandra Clare, and I've been reading Cassandra Clare forever, um, uh -huh. also reuses a lot of the same tropes, similar to the way Maria V. Snyder does. But she kind of flips them on their head in this trilogy. Plus, it is set in L.A., and obviously that is my hometown, and I believe Cassandra Clare has actually lived there because she actually writes about it like somebody who knows Los Angeles as opposed to somebody who has an idea of what it is. Mm. Um, so I like that aspect of it quite a bit. And I had just recently finished Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie Dow. Oh, I'm excited for that book. It's really good, you guys. I'm blurbing <laughs> it. Um, it is super good. Yeah, I, um, you guys are in a treat. I, I, like, I think I started it this past weekend and just like kind of with the intent, like, okay, I'm going to read a couple chapters and go to sleep. And I stayed up to like three in the morning. <laughs> I was like, whoops, almost done. What's sleep? Eh, I don't have to go to work tomorrow. That's great. <laughs> I mean, I had to get up and go to the gym and write, but, eh, you know. I, I don't I didn't have to change out of my pajamas, we'll put it that way. There you go. So that is what I've been reading. Um any off menu recommendations? Off menu recommendations. Um I just watched the second season of Sense Eight, which has since been cancelled. I know I saw. Which sucks because it ended on a huge cliffhanger. Okay, so here is... I think I tweeted about this briefly, but here is the thing about Sense8. The plot sucks. It's not even wackadoo. It's just... It's non-existent. Like, the, it makes no sense. The rules of the universe and, like, how the Sense8 works... So the basic concept, for those who don't know, is there's eight people who are... Um, telepathically and emotionally and physically linked. They can visit one another's bodies. They can, you know, share knowledge. So what one knows, they all know. They can experience each other's emotions. They can experience physical things. If I'm outside and it's snowing and some, one of my sensates is in the desert, they can feel the snow. It's like this whole big thing. Um, the rules for that change constantly, like from scene to scene within the episode, those are inconsistent <laughs> and will conflict with each other. So like if you go into the show expecting plot or if you go into the show expecting the quote unquote magic system to make any kind of sense whatsoever, um, if you need those things from your TV shows, don't watch Sense8 because you will lose your mind. <laughs> <laughs> but what Sense8 does incredibly well are these big cathartic emotional moments that feel true 
and real and are deeply, deeply rooted in character development. And so every single episode of this show is a mess. And every single episode of this show makes me sob, like uncontrollable weeping, like either because I'm happy and I'm elated or because I'm devastated. It is like the most cathartic experience. It's amazing how they do these things. It's so brilliant at that. I wish that it was better at the other stuff, but it doesn't matter. Like, I really think it deserves to continue running as a show because it has these big emotional moments that feel authentic and real and earned. I, I watch every episode and I'm so mad about all of the other stuff, but I am never mad. I, I never walk away from it feeling like they've done something cheap. Mm. Everything, every feeling that they evoke, that they pull out of me feels like they earned that. Um, and so it really is incredible. And I really suggest that you watch it. And I hope that someone else picks it up. And if not, if somebody wants to pick up a spinoff about Leto and Danny and Hernando, I would watch that entire show with just the three of them because they're my favorite. Uh, so I've been watching that. So that's good. Um, anything else? I have not seen any movies. I have not been listening to much music or or podcasts other than those I have um otherwise talked about before so I think that is mostly it yeah sense8 if you haven't seen it it's pretty good and also pretty bad but mostly good <laughs> <laughs> really there is no plot like I cannot stress enough like it doesn't make sense but <laughs> go watch it and cry all right Let's see. I have actually been consuming a lot of other media that isn't audio related because all of my previous ones have been audio related because that was all I could do when at I was the day, at job, day job. Yeah, yeah. But I have since then. So what have I? Oh, I um, started watching The Handmaid's Tale, which is gorgeously shot. Like every episode yeah. looks like a painting. It's beautiful and just it's. I mean, if you guys have read the book, you know how intense it is. Just like it yeah. is, it is not a show you can binge. I'll put it that way. Um, I could only take it like one episode at a time, but it is quite good. Um, and like I said, it's just beautiful to look at. It is whoever's the director of photography on that show is knows what they're doing. It's great. Um, then I also watched this trashy, trashy Hulu original show called Harlots. Um, it is set in 18th century London about prostitutes and it's like the, the trashiest soapiest melodrama you could possibly think about the sort of like because the main character is a brothel madam who's kind of like you know working class and she's looking to rise and like you know lift up her station in life she has two natural born daughters one is a pretty well-known courtesan um, and played by Lady Sybil from Downton Abbey. <laughs> so, like, um, and it's just, it's like, it's so deliciously melodramatically camp. Um, and it's not a bad show. Like, I wouldn't actually call it a bad show. Like, it's certainly trashy, but I don't think it's actually a bad show. Um, and this is bingeable. This one is definitely, like, fun to just watch from beginning to end. Um, I really love the female relationships in this show as well. Like, I mean, it is about, you know, London prostitutes. It's, the cast is predominantly women. 
and they all have different complex relationships with each other that are either, you know, sometimes competitive, but supportive or friendly, or sometimes like a friendly rivalry. Um, so it's a lot of fun to watch, so I, I do recommend that. I will have to say I can't tell any of the people apart, all any of the men apart, really, because they all look like some form of Matt Smith. Like, I can't tell who any of them are. But um, aside from that, highly enjoyable. I also started watching Still, Still Starcrossed, which is... Uh, <gasps> I want to watch that so bad. Is it good? Is it everything I, I want it to be? To be honest, I don't know if I have any objective distance from this show. Like, I don't. Um, it is a Shonda Rhimes show, and it's, like, um, about... It's, like, Romeo and Juliet, but it's post-Romeo and Juliet. And it's still, Which I it's love. Like, um, it's got people of color in the main roles, and it's just, like, it. it's... I think, like I said, I don't know if I have any objectivity. I just enjoy the show. I, I love historical costume dramas. I just like that they're not all white. And it's just like, I love everything about this. This is great. Um, and it's melodramatic because it's a Chandra Rhymes show. So, like, you know, it's got all of that sort of delicious soapiness to it. Um, so I, I started watching that. I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is... I did not expect to make me cry as hard as it did. I, like... Went into that movie theater expecting, like, oh, this is just going to be, like, a fun, you know, like, you know, summer blockbuster tentpole or whatever. And, like, the last 30 minutes of that movie, I was bawling my eyes out, just, like, weeping. I was like, I did not expect a movie like this to just, like, repeatedly punch me in the feels like that. <laughs> like, um, it's all about family. It's all about family and found family and friendships and everything. And I was just like, oh, God, like, I'm, like cry my eyes out so that was good and then also speaking of crying my eyes out i saw wonder woman earlier this week and again i don't know if i can like objectively say whether or not this movie is good or bad i do think it's good i think i don't think it's great but i think it's good it's definitely got some flaws in it but at the same time i don't care <laughs> Like, I didn't realize I needed this movie until I saw it. Um, and I just was, like, crying from, like, start to finish, basically. And not because it's sad. And not because it's particularly even emotional. It's not really... It, it is emotional in parts. But, like, I just was, like, a sobbing wreck from beginning to end. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean... I have not seen um, it yet. I want to see it very much. Um, so many women I know who have seen it have said similar things and cried throughout it. Um, so I'm sure I'll be one of them. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. Go see it. I mean, it's made a ton of money, so hopefully they'll make a Wonder Woman sequel. Because I would love to see more stories about them. So that would be great. Um, but yeah, that's that's been me. It's been refilling the creative well, which is... I think been working because writing no longer feels like pulling out teeth. Hmm. Good. 
that is all for this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about queries again, which we have done on the podcast before. Uh, we'll be talking about them in general, how to write them, structure them, format them, uh, because in a couple of weeks, we are going to be doing another query critique live on the podcast. Uh, we did start soliciting uh, queries for that like two months ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those of you who've already sent them in, thank you. Um, and those of you who still want to send them in, we'll have plenty of time. Um, we will definitely be doing that. Um, so you can send those to us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com. And, uh, and next week, we're just going to be talking about queries in general. So if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye! We're back.